God's Word in Ephesians chapter 1, looking and reading verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Lord, your word will accomplish what it desires. It does not go out and return void, so would you use your word now to encourage to bring people to you, that we might see how wonderful you are, that we might know how great our hope is and what great riches lay ahead of us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in Mark Twain's The Prince and Pauper, the Prince of England, Edward, lives in the castle. He enjoys the best food, drink, clothing, and entertainment. In contrast, the pauper... Tom Canty lives in dreadfully poor portion of London, and his father forces him to beg for money each day or be beaten. Tom barely has enough food, drink, or clothing, and he sleeps on the floor each night. Well, the local priest, though, Andrew Father, tells the children stories, teaches them to read and write, and calls them to lead a moral life. Well, Tom dreams of the riches of the wealthy And one day he wanders far from home. He wanders so far that he ends up at the gates of the palace. And as he looks in, a guard gets upset and beats him and throws him away. However, Prince Edward sees this and he rushes out and he rebukes the guard and he invites Tom into the castle. And as they go through the castle and he's showing him all of the things in it, they are both fascinated by the other person's life. Tom can't believe the wealth and all the things in the castle. The prince who is used to having ordered structure each day, can't believe all the fun and games that Tom gets to have in London. On a whim, they switch clothes, and once they do, they realize how much they look alike. But then Prince Edward sees a wound, a scar, sorry, not scar, a bruise on Tom, and in his anger, he rushes out to rebuke the guard again. But in his haste, he forgot he had on the pauper's clothes. And the guard mistakes him for the pauper and throws him out of the castle. No amount of pleading will let the guard let him back in because he looks just like the pauper. And a crowd grows, they mock him, and he's led away into London. And now the prince and the pauper have switched roles. Tom, the pauper, now lives as the prince. And now Edward, the prince, lives as a pauper. And they will come to know, not just with their heads, but with their experience, they will come to grasp what it's like to live in the other person's shoes as the prince or as the pauper. Well, in Ephesians chapter 1 
3 through 14, Paul opened with sweeping praise to God for his blessings to all who trust in Christ. And based on that, we saw last week that Paul turned to pray for the Ephesians. And we saw that Paul began his prayer by giving thanks to God for their work in their life. The Ephesians had two clear marks of being genuine followers of Christ. First, they had faith in the Lord Jesus. Second, they had love for all the saints. You know, sadly, it's common today for people to claim to be Christians who actually don't believe in the Lord Jesus and who actually don't love other Christians. Yet the Bible clearly states you're either on the broad road that leads to destruction or the narrow road that leads to life. There's no middle road where, well, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't really obey what Jesus tells me. I don't really want to do that. I don't really want to love other people. I'm just going to leave my life. There's no middle road. And so Paul gives thanks that these Ephesians have genuine marks of the work of God in their life. And after thanking them, Paul then asks that God would illumine their hearts to know him more. And now we turn to think and consider what are the things he wants them to know. Well, we'll see this morning two things. He wants them to know their hope. And then he wants them to know their riches. So first, if you have a bulletin, you can see that on the outline on the back. Knowing our hope. We read this in verse 18 where he says, What is the hope to which he's called you? Now when we hear the word hope, we think of something that's often wishful thinking. Someone might say, oh, I really hope I win the lottery. And you're thinking, you have no chance of winning the lottery. Or a very small chance. When the Bible uses the word hope, though, it refers to a forward confidence in that which is good and beneficial. It's in an objective reality, and it's eagerly expected. You know, it's, as one person said, faith standing on tiptoe. It's like hoping that Christmas will come. Well, Christmas is going to come. It comes every year on December 25th. It is confidently going to come, and so you're hoping for it. And we are called to such a hope. Yet while we can know what is hope, we often live as hopeless people. It may not appear that way to others. We show up, we smile, they say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. And yet inside, we can be discouraged. We can be depressed. This is often not because we don't have a sure hope, but we push those thoughts out of our mind in the trials and struggles of life seem to squelch our hope. You know, as a culture, we've become wanting instant gratification. We constantly fill our lives and our ears with distractions. And when faced with reality, what life is really like, we can often feel hopeless. However, Paul wants us to truly grasp, to truly know there is hope in Christ. There's hope in what he's called us to. Thus they should remember that they were separated from Christ and they had no hope without God in the world, but in Christ there is reason to have hope. And while Christians have that basis for hope, sometimes, as we read earlier in Psalm 42, we despair for life appears hopeless. Twice in that psalm, he says, Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? We can know that turmoil 
and we're wrestling why, what is going on. It looks like nothing's going to change, or if it does change, it's only going to get worse. So, do you have hope? If so, what is it placed in? Well, Paul wants them and us to know the hope to which he's called us. Now, God's call, as you know, is not a telephone call. It's not over a loudspeaker. But the good shepherd has called his sheep, and the sheep hear his voice. To what has the good shepherd called us? Well, let's notice six calls that the good shepherd has given to us. First, and ultimately, God has called us to himself. He said, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the ultimate call, to come to God. Romans 1, 6, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. The call of the Good Shepherd is to come back to Him. Second, the Good Shepherd calls us to be like Him in His holy character. Romans 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. We're called to be holy. 1 Peter 1.15, and as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. Third, God called us to freedom from sin, to love and serve others. Galatians 5.13 says, for you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And all of this is flowing together because our calling to be holy is a call to be like Him. And since we're going to be like Him, then we need to be free from sin as He is, and we need to love others by serving them as He does. You know, all of God's callings are one, though we're looking this morning at six different implications or facets of it. Thus, our fourth calling flows from the fact that he is holy, holy, holy. And that he loves and serves others. Because if we're going to do that, then we have to be in community with one another. Therefore, fourth, God calls us to peace with other Christians. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. The Good Shepherd does not just call us to himself, which he does. He then calls us to join with other believers. To live at peace. And that peace does not mean that anytime anything might be contentious, we go, oh, no, no, let's not talk about that. We might disagree. It's a peace that can even disagree, but say, we got something greater that unites us. Yeah, we may disagree on this or that, but you know what? Our love for Christ, it binds us together in love for one another. Well, fifth, because he wants us to be like him, and he calls us to be holy, we're also called to suffer called to suffer. 1 Peter 2, 19-21 For this is a gracious thing. Now we may not think this is gracious, but God believes it's gracious. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. As we come to know God, we know that the trials, the sufferings in life, he gives those 
to test us, to refine us, so that we might be more pure than gold, that we might be pure in our faith. So through the sufferings and hardships, God molds us and makes us to be more like Him. So Peter will go on in his letter, 1 Peter, to tell of how husbands and wives should relate to one another. And then Christians are called to suffer for righteousness' sake. You know, he then says, We are not to repay evil for evil, 1 Peter 3.9, but on the contrary, bless. Now, if this world, if the world we're on, the universe, if this is all there is, and when you die, it's just over. Nothing else, no reincarnation, no resurrection. Then the call to patiently endure suffering, the call to bless others when they curse you, is just weird. Why would you ever do that? If when you die, it's over? Well, then when they hurt you, hurt them back worse. When you suffer, get out of that and go get in a better situation. And yet if the King of Kings is going to return, if there is a creator and a sustainer of this universe, then there is more that we should do with our sufferings. We should do like God does, because when He is cursed, He blesses. When people treated His Son unjustly, we just read, He patiently endured it. So if we live in light of our calling and the hope God gives us, we will then live in these radical ways. And then people will wonder about us. Why in the world would you allow someone to treat you like that and then be kind to them? Peter continues, 1 Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, how can we make it through suffering when they are being so cruel and we're called to bless them? Well, because we know we have a hope that is not on this earth. We have a hope that is eternal. And so we willingly, though perhaps often agonizingly, go through suffering because we have a hope that exists beyond this world. It exists beyond what can be seen, tasted, touched, and felt right now. Now, the suffering is not the end goal. Rather, it is the means by which God uses to make us more like Him in holiness as He calls us to glory. And that's that's our sixth call. God calls us to glory through the means of suffering. 1 Peter 5.10 After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Yes, the sufferings of this present time are real. We ache and we groan when we hear of broken marriages. We cry out when loved ones get cancer, kidney stones, broken backs, when they lose their voice. We grieve as people pursue sin and flee from Christ. Thus God's calling to glory is not a call to a pain-free life or a sorrowful, sorrow-free life now. Yes, it is one, though, to sorrow-free and pain-free eternally. That's when our bodies and our minds fall apart. We can say, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not 
lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they are eternal. Now the point is not that sufferings now are light in comparison to what other people are suffering. It's not that they're light in comparison to a good and perfect life. Rather, they're light in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. As you look at a set of scales and you put our present sufferings, if you compare them to others, yours might be very heavy. As you compare your sufferings to what a good life is, they might be heavy. But when you put on the other side of the scale, eternal glory with the God of the universe living with Him, they're light as a feather. What we see now is transient. What we don't see is eternal. That's why, even as we grieve, as we did this morning, the death of a grandfather, we can say, as Paul does to the Thessalonian believers, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who've fallen asleep, those who've died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, Paul did not say, we do not want you to grieve, period. Stop. You're a Christian. You don't grieve. You rejoice in God. No. He says, we don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Yes, we should grieve. But we grieve with hope. And that's what Paul is wanting here in Ephesians, them to know. Do you know the hope of your calling? You're called to something far beyond what you can see, taste, touch, and feel. So friends, do you have that hope of your calling? Do you live your life in the midst of this hope, even in the midst of sorrow? Because you know that God has ultimately called you to himself. He will call you to glory. Yes, he has gone away, but he's coming again to prepare. He's gone away to prepare a place for us, and he is coming again. He is coming again, and then we will be with him. You know, he's not coming again to take us to beaches. He's not coming in to take us to the top 10 most visit vacation spots in the world. He's taking us to himself in glory, where the vacations and the beaches will far surpass anything here. So we grieve at the sufferings of this world. We grieve at death, but not as those without hope, because we have a sure calling. We have one that will ultimately be for our good. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans 8. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then notice right after that, he says, for those who are called. We have a calling. And we know our Father who's calling us to himself, calling us to holiness, is working all things for our good. So he's given us a sure calling in him. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Because he who promised is faithful. So when we feel, as we often do in this sinful world, when we feel hopeless, call out to God. Remind yourself of the sure hope you have in God. You know, that's what the psalmist did in Psalm 42. He starts out saying, I'm as a deer who pants after, as, as a deer pants for water, so I pant after you. And then twice he says, why is my soul cast down? 
But then he says, imperative, hope now in God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the pastor in London many years ago, expands on this by saying, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the morning when you wake up. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who is talking? Well, yourself is talking to you. Now, the psalmist's treatment was this. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down on my soul, he asked. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a minute. I'm going to speak to you. He goes on, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in the hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business do you have to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do for us in the future. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil and the world, whole world, and say with the psalmist, I shall yet praise him, my salvation, and my God. And so as we even did in Sunday school, sometimes we need to pause and go, what is so wonderful about God that we want to praise Him? And we have to remind ourselves of these truths as we're discouraged. We have to say, what is it that's discouraging us? And we don't go, well, that's nothing. But we go back to what we just said. In comparison to the glory that's going to be revealed, this is light and momentary. Yes, it hurts. But I have a greater and more sure hope. So do you know the hope of your calling? And part of knowing the hope of your calling is knowing what Paul says right after that. Knowing our riches. Again in verse 18. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You know, Paul mentioned before this in verses 3 through 14 in that sweeping praise. He mentioned in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? We as believers have an inheritance with God. God has caused us to be born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is going to be imperishable, undefiled, and, fade, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. We mentioned a few weeks ago the Cornwall estate that Prince William inherited. That's an inheritance, but ours is much better. He only got a place that's 700 years old. That's three times the size of Wichita Falls and valued at $1.2 billion. But that property will perish. That property will need to be painted, updated, and restored from time to time. That property will have its beauty fade. And even if they can keep that property in tip-top shape, William is going to die. He'll lose his inheritance. And yet we've been given an inheritance that is eternal. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And we will have resurrection bodies. 
We will never die, so we will get to enjoy it forever. And Paul is praying, do you know the hope of your inheritance? Do you know the riches that you have in Christ? Now, some may question, you know, should we even care about an inheritance? You know, some people sometimes get very spiritual and pious. Like, well, we care about spiritual things. You shouldn't care about, like, owning a house or a car. Well, no, God blesses us with physical things. He made us body and soul. When Jesus came, he didn't just come and eat the bare minimum. He went to weddings. He made wine. He blessed his people in the Old Testament with possessions. So, yes, we should look forward to our inheritance. But let's ask two questions about that. First, who gets the inheritance? And then second, how do we get the inheritance? Well, first, who gets the inheritance? Well, God's giving an inheritance is often a driving plot in the Bible. So let's back up and see how often the Bible talks about our inheritance. You may remember the first 11 chapters of Genesis. They tell of the creation, the fall of man, and then the flood. And then after that, in Genesis 12, begins the call of Abraham, who becomes Abraham. And the story goes from that. It's recorded in Genesis 12, where it reads, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, Abraham trusted God. He went out. And then Hebrews eleven eight says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place because he knew he was to receive an inheritance. That's what God was promising him in Genesis 12. You have an inheritance waiting for you. And yet Hebrews also makes clear that the inheritance that Abraham wanted was not just a physical place, the promised land. He wanted a better dwelling. That's why Hebrews 11.10 says, He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He was wanting a better inheritance. He wanted to be with God. You know, just as that's our first call, as we saw that, God calls us to himself. God's call, his blessing, his inheritance to Abraham was, you'll one day be with me, a heavenly city. As Randy Alcorn said, our true home is a place we've never been. Home is where our father is. That's our inheritance. Yet then, the story takes a twist and turn. Because Abraham's been promised an inheritance, but in Genesis 15, Abram says, Behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my own household will be my heir. Who's going to inherit? I don't have someone to give this inheritance to. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now this is a major problem because Abraham is almost 100 Sarah's almost 90. Do they have a sure hope? Well, yes, because God's promises always come true. So at 190, they give birth, or she gives birth, to Isaac, which means laughter, as they laugh at being given a child in their old age. And after God delivered Israel out of Egypt, what did he do? He led them to their inheritance, their physical inheritance, the promised land. And then God allotted to each of them, each of the tribes, an inheritance, a portion of land. But one tribe, the Levites don't get land, but rather they get a better 
inheritance. That's Numbers 18, 20. God declared to them, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Now, though they may have felt, though people may have felt, well, that's kind of like leftover scraps. They're getting land and we get you. That was the best. Why would you want land when you could have God? The Levites were given the best blessing. They were given what Abraham was looking forward to. A city whose designer and builder is God. And then understanding this driving theme of inheritance through the Old Testament makes clear certain stories, like the story in 1 Kings 21, when Ahab wants the vineyard of Naboth, and he offers to give him money, even give him a better vineyard, and Naboth says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. This inheritance was from God. They can't just give it away. And so Naboth won't take any amount of money. He won't take any other land because he recognizes this is God's inheritance. Seeing how the story, the theme of inheritance goes through the Old Testament, even through the New Testament, helps us understand the pain and agony of the exile. How could they understand the utter shock and dismay that both Israel and Judah get taken into exile? They've been taken from their inheritance. How does that fit? They've been taken from the promised land. But that's why there's great joy in Nehemiah when they return. And it says, And the rest of Israel, and of the priests and the Levites, were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. They're coming back to what God promised. And all along, along with the problem that Abraham and Sarah were childless, and that they couldn't pass on the inheritance, while there's that problem, there's another problem with the inheritance in the Old Testament. That is, how will Abraham and all his descendants be able to be in to inherit God's city? Because Psalm 23, 4 asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? So who's going to get to be with God? What well, answers, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. So Psalm 24 is saying, if you've ever told one lie, you can't come into God's presence. If you've ever sworn incorrectly, you've made yourself unfit to be with God. So how in the world is Abraham going to inherit being with God when, as the Old Testament also makes clear, we have all sinned? Even Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. If these people come when they've sinned against you, and then he adds, for there is no one who does not sin. So how are they going to enjoy this inheritance with God if their sin keeps them from God? Well, it will be through the Word made flesh, the Messiah. For as the angel said in Matthew one twenty one, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not only is he the Savior though, but he's also the Son of God and the Son of Abraham. And so Hebrews 1 tells us, In these last days God has spoken to us by a son, and then notice what it says next, whom he appointed heir of all things. All of the promises of inheritance through the Old Testament, they come and they find their fulfillment in Christ. He's the heir. He's the one in which all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. And that leads to our second question. How do we get the inheritance? Well, look up 
in what we read in verses 11 through 14. Ephesians 1.11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So, who gets the inheritance? Those who by faith in Christ have been brought into the family. They now have their names written into the family will, so to speak. This is really nothing new. Romans 4, 13-14 For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be an heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. For if it is the adherents, adherents sorry, of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. We never got the inheritance by being good enough. It was always God's gift. His gift that he promised by faith. And then many of you, if not all of you, know the song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's all trust the Lord. Right on, let's keep going. And we keep going. Because in Abraham, we are then put into the promises, and how do we enjoy the promises of Abraham? In him, we've obtained an inheritance. In Christ. That's why Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ, you trust him, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, according to the promise. We are part of the inheritance by faith in Christ. And this is a mystery. That's why later in Ephesians 3 we'll read, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Well, they're not. I'm not a descendant of Abraham by blood, but by faith in Christ. I become a child of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all trust the Lord. We've obtained this inheritance from God, not by manipulating our way into the will. We've obtained an inheritance from God, not by being a good enough servant. He then chooses, well, this servant served me so well, I'll let them enjoy some of the will with the family. We've obtained an inheritance from God, not because we pray, we do religious deeds. Okay, well, if you become religious, then you become an inheritor. We obtain an inheritance with God because he's given it to Jesus. He's the heir of all things. And we're connected to Jesus by faith in him. Faith in Jesus Christ alone secures the inheritance. And yet, flip over three, four chapters, Ephesians chapter 5. Because this faith that is given is not faith that's alone. It's faith that works. Because Ephesians 5, 5 says, For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Well, so do we inherit the kingdom by faith or by being sexually moral and sexually pure and not coveting? Well, it's both in the sense that God gives us faith and that faith then leads us to lead sexually moral lives. It leads us to not covet. It leads us to say, God is what's best. So I don't need to covet what my neighbor has. I don't need to desire their spouse or their children or their clothing or their health. I've been given God. That's my inheritance. And so that is what God will give us when he is our hope. When he 
is our inheritance. Well, we began the sermon by referring to the prince and the pupper and how they both came to know the life of the other. And originally, the pupper, Tom Canty, was quite embarrassed. He kept waiting for the real prince to come back and let him go. And he really disliked the castle because they did everything for him. He couldn't take his clothes off. He couldn't put his clothes on. He couldn't wash his own hands. He couldn't get his own food. Everything was done for him, and he hated it. And yet over time, he came to enjoy it more and more and more. And then one day, the king died, so who's going to inherit the throne? Tom, the pauper who's now in the position of prince. And the day of the coronation comes, and he's riding in the chariot, probably not chariot, cart, whatever, going to the castle, going to be coronated. And as he goes, he looks out in the crowd, and he sees his mom. And his, he grew up, not to tell the whole story, but he grew up, he ended up developing this involuntary reaction when he saw his mom, and he did it. And his mom recognized, that's my son. And she runs through the security guards and grabs his legs. And you know what Tom does? He looks down and he says, Woman, I do not know you. You know, he had come to covet the castle. At first, he thought it'd be great, but I don't really want it. And yet, the castle got a grip on his heart. And he wanted it more than his own family. And sadly, that's true of us in our sin. We have a father. And yet, we covet the things of earth. And we cling to them and we say, Father, I don't know you. I want this stuff. And yet, Tom then immediately felt deep shame and despair. He immediately realized, I was willing to throw that away for the stuff. I don't want the stuff anymore. And he felt horrible, and he cried out to God to free him from his captivity. Tom set his hope on earthly treasure. He would do anything, even deny his own mom to have it. And while that seemed, that's going to give me lasting joy, it only brought shame and despair. And it's true for us as well. Clinging to the riches of this earth, putting your hope on the things now, it seems like that's going to be the life. That's going to secure the kingdom. That's going to give me the wonderful life. And yet God says no. I am the only one who can give you hope. I'm the one who can give you riches eternally. So let us trust. Let us hope in the one who is the heir. For in Christ, we have a sure calling. We have hope and we have an eternal inheritance. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we have eyes to see. Lord, may everyone in here know the hope of your calling. Lord, it does look with our physical eyes that this world is better. We do love our sin. And yet, Lord, would you work even now to stir in us more love for you, a greater hope in you, that we would see how great the riches are in you and in the inheritance of being with you for all eternity. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.